everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order at any time, and there is always free shipping to the United States. That's secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, This week, I don't really have any um, new news to share with you guys today in terms of the King world, um, except that Castle Rock Season 2 will be premiering on Hulu on October 23rd. Uh, I really enjoyed the first season. Um, It was a little hit and miss at parts, but ultimately I had a good time watching it, so I'm really excited uh, for Season 2. Uh, especially because Lizzie Kaplan, um, she'll be playing Annie Wilkes. And, you know, she's not the only King character that we're going to be seeing in season two either. So I'm pretty excited for it. Um, I think that uh, a lot of shows sometimes hit their stride in the second season. So uh, I'm really thinking that uh, September and October um, are going to be really good months for King fans. Uh, And we're getting even closer to the release of It Chapter 2 which I have tickets for next Friday night. So I'm hoping um, that I will be able to fit in a really short review for you guys um, on next week's episode. Obviously, it would be spoiler-free, but I'm really looking forward to that. And then a couple days after It Chapter 2, we will get the release of The Institute, which is Stephen's new novel. And so I, you know, the next couple weeks are going to be pretty great for King fans. Um, and then, you know, with the news of the the Roadwork movie and The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, um, I'm really hoping that maybe some of his other works will get picked up to be adapted, maybe some of his uh, better works. <laughs> so, But I will take what I can get, so I'm not going to complain too much. And I also want to give another quick shout out to the Take Three podcast. They are a movie podcast, Nick and Jordan. And this week's episode um, that just got released yesterday, Friday, uh, they cover It Chapter One. And this is, I listened to it yesterday at work. Really great episode. They're very insightful. Um, They pointed out a lot of the problems that I had with the movie. Ultimately, I really enjoyed it. And The more that I saw It Chapter 1, the more I liked it. I think it grew on me a lot more with repeat viewings. Um, But yeah, so if you guys are uh, King fans, obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, I hope you are. Um, If you enjoyed It Chapter 1, I recommend uh, downloading Take 3, a movie podcast, and give their It Chapter 1 a listen, and then go back and listen to their other stuff, because those are really good episodes, too. I'm slowly making my way through them. Um, so yeah, so thank you, Nick and Jordan for your shout out this week as well. And today we are going to chat, uh, tackle, I can talk, I promise. We're going to tackle chapter 17. Um, if I still sound horrible, like I did last week, I'm really sorry. I've had this cold for about a week now and it just seems to be lingering. (laughs) So hopefully I'm not as nasally as I was last week. And if I am, I apologize (laughs) anyway. So let's get on with this. Okay. So to recap, last week, Chapter 16, we met Poke Freeman and Lloyd Henreid, two petty criminals who get caught up in a poorly thought-out drug scheme and end up on a murderous rampage through Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico on their way back, or not on their way back, but on their way to New York. And, you know, criminal masterminds, these two are not, and they end up trying to rob a gas station slash 
convenience store in Arizona where Poke and two bystanders are shot and killed. And Lloyd is arrested um, and knocked out by one of the police officers. So he wakes up in the um, uh, county jail. So, you know, I was thinking as I was reading this week's um, chapter, is Poke our first book casualty that is not caused by Captain Tripp's? Um, I, w- I'm trying to, I was trying to think, and I think he might be, um, unless I'm forgetting somebody which is a very good possibility with how clogged my brain has been. Um, It really feels like he is. He's the first uh, book death that was not caused by the super flu. Um, But I digress. Anyway, so we leave Lloyd in a county jail infirmary and return to General William Starkey, who is still in front of those damn monitors, still watching that poor man um, who had died with his face buried in a bowl of soup. But now we know this man's name is Frank Bruce. He's been identified. Um, And then Starkey moves on to Emmanuel Eswick, who, if you guys remember, he had been one of the first, uh, the first men that Starkey saw on the monitors. He died on the floor of his lab. So he is, Starkey is really taken in by this uh, centrifuge. Did I say that? I hope I'm saying that right, centrifuge. And this centrifuge is still going. And a centrifuge is, you know, the, the lab equipment that puts an object in rotation, has that really strong spin, and I believe it separates liquids or, you know, that's one of the things it can do. Um, anyway, so this centrifuge uh, was spinning, and Starkey is playing, paying really close attention to this thing. Um, he notes that at 1940 hours, that's military time, be 7.40 p.m., the centrifuge begins to emit smoke. And so the book edition I'm reading, it's the Kindle version of The Stand, and the book edition I'm reading, it says 1995 hours, which I don't think exists because 1900 hours is 7 p.m., right? So maybe it should read 1955 hours. I don't know if this is a typo. Um, I looked it up online, and I did one of those uh, military time to... Uh, regular time converters because I'm an idiot. And it came up, it said, I put 1995 and it said seven question mark, question mark, question mark. (laughs) So I'm assuming this is a typo of the Kindle version. I need to go back in one of my physical copies and look and see if it says 1995 hours in the physical copy. But if any of you listening are in the military or have been in the military and you can correct me on my confusion please send me an email at thecirclecloses at gmail.com and tell me because I would love to know if this is just a typo or I'm just an idiot. So anyway, at this point, um, I'm going to go with 7.55 p.m. So 7.55 p.m., the centrifuge gets louder. Um, It's making a horrible ronk, ronk sound as it starts spinning towards its death. And, you know, uh, King just types in these words, um, the, the way that this centrifuge is supposed to sound. And it's funny because I heard those sounds in my head. That's how effective that was. Um, and at 21.07 hours, which is 9.07 p.m., the centrifuge finally breaks and comes to a stop. And it says, quote, the centrifuge had been the last illusion of life. Starkey had even asked uh, one of his men how long the centrifuge could run. And this guy seemed a little confused by the request, um, but they put the question into this computer, which comes back with very specific data 
about the areas of its malfunction, um, including a 38% chance that it could burn out its bearings, which it had. So Starkey's a little obsessed with the centrifuge, and I can see that he's kind of uh, projecting um, the th- his thoughts and his fears of Captain Trips or Project Blue onto the centrifuge. What are the odds? How long could the centrifuge go uh, without human interaction, human uh, somebody turning it off? Um, and I can see that this is kind of like symbolism for Captain Trips. How long can humanity survive um, without a vaccine, without something stopping it? Like, uh, and we we already know there's a 99.4 uh, percent communicability, so the odds are not in our favor. So at this point, um, Starkey receives a call from Len Crichton, and he informs Starkey that he got a call from their team in Sipe Springs, Texas which is about 400 miles from Arnett. Uh, Len explains that the situation requires a command decision from Starkey. And Starkey's pretty calm about this. Um, he's taken 16 downers, as he's called them, uh, and he's feeling pretty good. So I, uh, he's not burning out the way the centrifuge has. Um, the drugs are keeping him going. Um, I also don't think that that means he should be in charge of making uh, command decisions but uh, it is what it is. Len explains that the command decision is in regards to the press, the media. Uh, This is clearly not good news. There's a lot of code here uh, between the Army and Starkey. Um, The Army comes on the line, and their name is Team Lion. They are reaching out to Blue Base One, who is obviously Starkey, and the problem has a code name as well, Flower Pot. They explain the situation, but Starkey already knew this would happen. Uh, The computer that told him how long the centrifuge would last before it malfunctioned also told Starkey that this particular situation had an 88% probability to happen before the end of June. Um, It's, I want to know what this computer is. This computer is very specific with probability and situations and circumstances. Um, But you know, it is what it is. It happens. The book describes the situation as, quote, A doctor in Sipe Springs had made some good guesses, and a pair of reporters for a Houston Daily had linked what was happening in Sipe Springs with what had already happened in Arnett, Verona, Commerce City, and a town called Polliston, Kansas. Those were the towns where the problem had gotten gotten so bad so fast that the Army had been sent in to quarantine. The computer had a list of 25 other towns in 10 states where traces of blue were beginning to show up. And Starkey realizes that the Sipe Springs incident is not important because to him it's not unique. See, um, Arnett was unique, and that had been their chance, and they had screwed that one up royally. Um, The important part of Sipe Springs was that the, quote, situation was finally going to see print on something besides yellow military flimsy. Was, anyway, unless Starkey took steps. And it seems like Starkey has already made his decision by the time the voice on the other end of the call stops talking. Uh, He has to focus on what's important, not the fact of the disease or that Atlanta had been breached, meaning they would have to move everything from Atlanta to Stovington, Vermont, where there is a, a CDC there as well. It wasn't that Project Blue spread like a ninja, basically, due to its common cold disguise. Um... It seems like in Starkey's head, what was important was that a regrettable incident had occurred. 
he has a flash to his Vietnam Vietnam days. Um, he was an officer when the news came in about the My Lai uh, incident. Um, this was the My Lai uh, massacre, where a company of American soldiers had slaughtered civilians in the village of My Lai in 1968. Over 500 people were killed, um, and U.S. Army officers covered this up for nearly a year before it got reported by the press. And when the news came out, when the truth came out, it intensified the division in the U.S. about the Vietnam War. Um, Basarki recalls this coming to light, and one of the officers he was with telling the others, quote, Gentlemen, a regrettable incident had occurred. And when a regrettable incident occurs, which involves any branch of the United States military, we don't question the roots of that incident, but rather how the branches may best be pruned. The service is a mother and a father to us. And if you find your mother raped or your father beaten and robbed before you call the police or begin an investigation, you cover their nakedness because you love them. It's pretty disturbing to think about um, the state of mind one has to be in to protect the people who have committed such atrocities in the name of patriotism or war. And doing what's best for the American people, um, that seems to be their justification. And it seems like Starkey is headed down that road as well because he pulls out a folder, blue folder, bound with red tape. And the cover reads, if tape is broken, notify all security divisions at once. And Starkey breaks the tape. He flips to the last page where it reads, Extreme Covert Countermeasures. Starkey tells Team Lion his answer to the problem flower pot, and his answer is Troy. The command seems to stun Team Lion, but the voice on the other end of the call repeats the command and then agrees to it. The call ends and Len is back on the line. Uh, he assures Starkey that he's done the right thing. Starkey returns to watching the monitors, where Frank Bruce's face is still resting in his bowl of soup. This chapter shifts um, and takes us to Sipe Springs, Texas. We're in a Pontiac Bonneville flying over U.S. 36, and the driver is a reporter for a Houston paper, and in the passenger seat is his photographer. Uh, U.S. 36 drives out of Sipe Springs back towards Houston, and the two are in a mighty big hurry to get out of town. Um, but as they come over a rise in the road, they see a uh, nondescript Ford blocking the road, nearly causing the Bonneville to crash. The reporter slams on his brakes while the radio plays Baby, Can You Dig Your Man by Larry Underwood. The reporter is very angry. He backs up the Ford um, and drives towards uh, he backs up the Bonneville, I'm sorry, he drives towards the Ford. But the photographer, he's nervous. He does not want to get into a fight. So the reporter gets out of the car and starts screaming at the two young men who are standing behind the Ford. Um, and we we see that this reporter, he was in the Army. Um, he recognizes the M3As that are brought up, but it's too late for him to run. Um, and the two men... With the guns, open fire and kill the reporter fairly quickly and rather brutally. Um, with the reporter out of the way, the two men start to ascend on the Bonneville, the Pontiac, and, and the photographer. And He gets into the driver's seat. He starts to drive the Bonneville away, but the rifle fire blows out the tires. Um, and that doesn't really stop the Pontiac. It just kind of slows it down. So the men get into the Ford, which belongs to the Army. 
and they give chase. And it must be noted that one of the soldiers sneezes all over the windshield. And I am simply assuming that anyone who coughs or sneezes from here on out is infected with Project Blue or Captain Trips. They are sick. Anyway, they track down the Pontiac and they hit it with their car. Um, that causes the Pontiac to kind of crash, come to a stop. And the photographer breaks his nose on the steering wheel. But you know what? That does not stop him. Um, adrenaline is a very powerful thing. And he is out of the car and he is running. Unfortunately, just as he thinks he's going to get away, he uh, tries to climb over some barbed wire and gets stuck. The two soldiers approach and they execute him, which is really the only way I can describe it. Um, there are no published reports of disease or any other trouble in Sipe Springs that day. And thus ends chapter 17. Um, so yeah, so the army has called Starkey with a problem. And the problem is a couple of reporters from Houston are in Sipe Springs thank to, thanks to some suspicions from a Sipe Springs doctor. Uh, these reporters have managed to link what was happening in Sipe Springs to other quarantine cities, including Arnett. Uh, Starkey commands the reporters be executed. That is essentially to protect the army um, and the country using the cover-up of the My Lai massacre as justification. Um, and, you know, maybe that's not justification. Maybe he compares this problem to what occurred during Vietnam. He's just comparing it, cover up the unsavory parts out of respect before the rest of the country and the world catches on. Um, and he knew this would happen. His trusty computer gave him the probability of it. So 88% is pretty high. In a way, he was expecting this. Uh, he doesn't seem to hesitate in ordering the deaths of these two people either. Um, but that's probably because of the downers he keeps popping. Um, at this point, I wonder if it's really worth trying to keep Captain Tripp's uh, Project Blue covered up because uh, what's the point? You know, there's a 99.4 communicability rate here and this disease is going to keep spreading and quickly. And we've already seen from previous chapters that it has. It's reached Arkansas, New York, um, Maine, probably at this point. We'll find out. Uh, but it just, from his pre from the previous chapters with Starkey, um, he seems to realize that there's nothing he can do about it or anyone. Uh, this feels like, ex excuse me as I quote Taylor Swift here, putting band-aids on bullet holes. Uh, it's not going to do anything but delay the inevitable uh, just by a little while. What is, I mean, really, what are they going to do? They can't keep quarantine. They can't quarantine every city in America. It's just not possible. We also know for sure that Atlanta's integrity has been breached. Thank you, Nurse Pettigreer, for spreading your hay fever all over the damn place. And they will be moving their operations from the CDC in Atlanta to Stovington, Vermont. Now, Stovington is a fictional city, and for constant readers, you will recognize this city from The Shining. Stovington is where the Torrance family lived before they traveled to the Overlook Hotel. And Jack Torrance also taught at Stovington Prep, a school where Chuck Ch Chatsworth from the Dead Zone also attended. So I kind of like this little, like, king woven universe here. But back to the stand, um, operations are moving from Atlanta to Stovington, and I assume that Stu Redman will be going with them. Um, this also puts him a little bit closer to uh, New York, where Larry is, and uh, Maine, where we have Fran. 
So Poke was our first um, non-Project Blue slash Captain Trips casualty. Um, I mean, if you exclude the people that Poke and Lloyd murdered. Uh, so now we also have this reporter and photographer, um, neither of whom got names. They're just the reporter and the photographer. Uh, they were shot and killed on orders by General Starkey because they had begun to put the pieces together and it would have likely absolutely put this in print. Um, no doubt their reporting probably would have caused a panic, especially if the story got picked up <clears throat> by major newspapers or TV stations. And I'm trying to think of like 1990 for this, you know, not 2019 where, damn, I mean, they would have to do plenty of in-depth reporting, but you put something out there like on Twitter as a reporter and it gets picked up, it's gone. You can't stop it. It goes viral. It's out there. Even if you delete the tweet, it's it's out there. It will never be deleted. The internet is forever. So this is really interesting to me um, that they didn't quite have a chance to tell the American people what was going on. And, you know, does that justify, does panic justify silencing these reporters for good? I want to know what you guys think of that particular dilemma. Do you agree with Starkey's decision? Um, what about the doctor in Sipe Springs? We don't know what has happened to him or her yet, if anything. And it seems like, at least uh, for now, Project Blue remains under wraps and hidden from the American public. And I can't really, I can't assume anybody's going to justify murder um, to hide uh, what's happening, this kind of huge um potentially fatal end of humanity disease but it does breach kind of a good um, moral dilemma question you know kind of like that runaway trolley dilemma Uh, the trolleys hurtling towards five rail workers if it hits them it will surely kill them you happen to be standing next to the switch that could divert the train you know onto a separate track where only one rail worker is standing if you flip the switch the five workers will be spared uh, the single worker will be killed. Would you flip the switch? That kind of thing. Um, but this is a little different. This is this is inevitable. This Project Blue, uh, this super flu, Captain Trips, this is not going to stop. This is not just um, f- saving five people. This is basically, um, at this point, there's nothing they can do about it. Everybody's going to probably get wiped off the face of the earth. So is it really worth it to execute a reporter and two reporters to kind of keep it under wraps for a little while longer um anyway it was a very interesting chapter to me um I liked getting Starkey's point of view even if I don't agree with his decision um and the the end there with the reporter and the photographer was pretty gruesome very disturbing um there's no names no no the soldiers don't get a name the photographer and the reporter don't get a name Um, and it felt very like detached emotionally, kind of like, this is what happens. This is, um, this is the truth of it. And, um, I'm not going to compare that to any relevance of today. Um, but you can certainly make that argument. Um, so anyway, so next week we will return to Shoyo, Arkansas, and we're going to be back with Nick Andros. And I'm really excited about this chapter because we get a lot of backstory on Nick, Um, And we also get some updated, uh, we get some news about um, Captain Trips in Shoyo. So I'm really excited to talk about next week's chapter. And with that being said, we are at the end of chapter 16. Nope, not chapter, 
episode 16. I'm sorry. I still have cold medicine floating around in my system. (laughs) Thank you to everyone who has already sent me feedback. And if you're enjoying the podcast, um, it would be really amazing and helpful for me if you left a rating um, or and or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this uh, podcast, The Circle Opens. Thank you to everyone who has already done so. And if you want to reach out, you can find me on social media at The Circle Opens or you can email me at thecirclecloses.com. Um, you can even leave me a comment on thecircleopens.com. Um, I've been retooling that blog. I'm pretty proud of it so far. It's a big work in progress, but if you're a fan of the stand, I think that you will enjoy it. So be sure to check that out. And with that, as always, M-O-O-N, that spells, see you next week.